Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Martin Gobala. He's a professor and the faculty of science research chair in integrative exercise physiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. His research examines the mechanistic basis of exercise responses and the impacts on health and performance. Dr. Gabala's laboratory is internationally recognized for studies on interval training. This guy is truly a world-leading expert and maverick in examining interval training. And this work has attracted immense scientific attention and worldwide media coverage. In today's episode, we dive deep into interval training, high-intensity interval training, sprint interval training, the mechanisms by how these things work, the minimum amount you need, how an individual designs a protocol based on age and outcome desired, and what does the science actually say about high-intensity interval training compared to other training modalities? I absolutely loved sitting down with Dr. Gabala. He is an amazing interview, very charismatic, and a brilliant science communicator. As always, if you like this episode of the show, please rate it, subscribe, share it. We do our best to bring you evidence-based information with world-leading experts. Let's dive in. Thank you to Bite Toothpaste for sponsoring this episode of the show. Did you know that not only when you brush your teeth, you get cleaner teeth, but you also ingest a lot of toothpaste. That's one of the reasons why I love Bite. It's exactly that. It's one bite. You pop it in your mouth, you chew it up, and you start, don't swallow it, and you start brushing your teeth. It is a dry toothpaste tablet with clean ingredients, sulfate-free, palm oil-free, and glycerin-free. I love this. Not only do I love it because it eliminates a ton of waste, but I am not swallowing that 5% of toothpaste every single time I brush because that's how much you would swallow. That is a lot of toothpaste over a period of time. They come in refillable glass jars and nobody likes someone who's walking around with bad breath. It is an amazing, amazing product. Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. You can go to trybite.com slash Dr. Lion or use the code Dr. Lion at checkout. That's trybite.com slash Dr. Lion. Bite makes plastic-free alternatives for everything on your bathroom sink. This is a great company from toothpaste to mouthwash to toothbrushes to deodorant, the whole nine yards. So check out trybite.com. Special thank you to Cozy Health for sponsoring this episode of the show. I have been using Cozy Health products for years now. Why Cozy Health? Cozy Health makes amazing red light therapy devices. If you do not own a red light therapy device, this is your chance. I use a large wall panel and I also travel with a small handheld. Number one, it improves my energy. It is great for skin. There's some evidence that it reduces wrinkles, also increases hair growth. It's a really amazing, amazing product. And there's science behind photobiomodulation, which is exactly what red light is. And Cozy's red light devices have a red and a near-infrared wavelength, and they're very transparent about uh, the numbers. The other thing that I love about Cozy is it uses flicker-free power drivers. So there is a, a potential harmful effect with the flicker. It eliminates that. It is built to be EMF-free from a distance of four inches. EMF is something that people often ask about or worry about. This is a EMF-free device from the distance of four inches. Great customer service. You actually get a 60-day money-back guarantee on every purchase. You cannot beat it. Head on over to CozyHealth.com slash Dr. Lion and use the code Dr. Lion at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first order. Dr. Martin Gobala, thank you so much for joining me on the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. It is a great privilege to talk about all things high-intensity interval training. 
Nice. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. This is going to be great. Um, so basically, when I asked you, Phillips, this was a handful of years ago, I said, so tell me, who is the guy, the guy to go to for high intensity interval training? And of course, you were number one on the list. I would love for you to share a little bit about your research, how you got where you are, and um, what you are currently doing in your lab. Yeah, so happy to delve into that. And, you know, I think interval training right off the top, it's one of those things we tend to rediscover every decade or so. So sometimes I'm, I'm called the guru, but it makes me quite uncomfortable because clearly there's many good people working in the area and a lot of good folks have come uh, before me in even in studying this from a scientific perspective. But, you know, athletes have been using interval training since the turn of the century. Uh, it's actually been advanced as a means to enhance health for many, many decades and we started getting into this research probably about 15 years ago. The classic story that I tell is I, I teach a, an undergraduate course, a senior course called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. And the students are always very interested in the training regimes of elite athletes. And so I would ask them, why do why does sprinting help aerobic performance or make these, you know, why do athletes practice interval training to enhance their endurance performance? And it was a way to teach them a little bit about the biochemistry. And when I first got into this, uh, I was a busy young professor with a working spouse, two young children. And so quite ironically, for a professor of exercise physiology, I, I found myself with little time to exercise and train. And so that led to a, a personal and professional interest that you know, last, has lasted now uh, almost 20 years. And you still love it. I, I do. I, I, you know, I, I definitely practice what I preach. Um, you know, we're not only saying it's the only way to get fit or to enhance your health, uh, but it's certainly a, a very uh, effective option, I think. I, I would say that a lot of people really agree. And, you know, my patients, they always ask me, well, how do we define interval training? And in the literature and obviously on social media, there's multiple. It, it just seems as if there's a lot of discussion, but truly there's various kinds of interval training. So I would love for you to lay the foundation of those definitions. Yeah, absolutely. So interval training, to me at least, is just alternating periods of more intense effort with recovery. And how we define more intense, we can get into. And recovery can be complete rest or just lower intensity activity. So let's first separate interval training from high intensity interval training. You can do moderate interval training, which might be an example of intermittent walking. You know, the classic example where you're out for a walk with your spouse or partner at night or walking the dog, you just pick up the pace for a few light posts. You're not necessarily getting into the high intensity or vigorous intensity range, but that's an example to me, at least of, of interval training. So I think it, I, I like to have this broad, um, all encompassing uh, philosophy for what constitutes interval training. Now, what is, what is high intensity yep. interval training? This is sort of front of mind because I'm actually writing a review article right now with my postdoc and a, and a couple of other distinguished professors uh, uh, on this topic of what means high intensity interval training, whether you're interested for health or performance. And so I, 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 on a on a health side, you know, if we look at the WHO guidelines, the authoritative guidelines for physical activity intensity classification, the WHO basically has three light moderate and vigorous. And of course, you know, vigorous is uh, defined by RPE or METS. Uh, and so I think, or I like to position or think of high intensity interval training is generally equating with vigorous type effort. You know, if you look at the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines, they expand out the exercise categories to include very light um, and a, a near maximal to maximal type exercise, but they also have a vigorous intensity range. And so the point here is often people will say, well, it's around somewhere about 80% of your maximum heart rate or above. We're trying to sort of reframe the messaging a little bit or propose, let's just think of it as vigorous intensity type effort, whether you define that based on heart rate, RPE, percentages of VO2 max, Vigorous intensity effort range is well-defined in the public health and exercise prescription guidelines. And that's how I would like people to think about high-intensity interval training. And then there's a more intense version called sprint interval training that would be in that near-maximal to maximal type effort range. If you're an athlete, 
and you know, just to finish on the athlete side, athletes talk about uh, domain-based training. And so there's a classic three-domain model for, for athletes, uh, moderate, heavy, severe intensities. And then, of course, many athletes want to break that down further into zone training, four, five, six, seven, eight zones. Uh, and so on the uh, athlete side of things, I think you're in the severe intensity domain, which is typically defined as being above uh, your second lactate threshold or critical power, critical speed. So, you know, in sum, I think we can have this broad definition of high intensity interval training and then contextualize it, whether you're an athlete or whether you're someone who's interested in general health and performance. And there's no single metric that's appropriate for everyone or explicitly defines it based on one marker. That's really fascinating because oftentimes when we think about dosing something as it relates to a treatment, in my mind, we also need to think about dosing exercise. And what I'm hearing you say is that that dose is different for everybody. As it relates to perceived exertion, how would an individual know that they are working hard enough to get a physiological or metabolic adaptation? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I, 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 how's this? I don't want to hedge with all my answers or be the classic scientist who says, well, it depends, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of gray, but for all of this, of course, there is. And so, of course, it depends what your starting point is. You know, I could take 100 individuals and for some, uh, a given dose of exercise is hardly a physiological stress at all for them if they're relatively fit. And if they're quite fit, of course, uh, it may be too much for them or overwhelm them. But in terms of RPE, the classic scales, there's sort of two classic scales, right? If you go back to the work of, of Gunnar Borg, there's the 6 to 20 scale. Um, and typically uh, there we'd be talking 14 out of 20 uh, on that scale would be getting into the vigorous intensity range. If you use a 0 to 10 or a 1 to 10 scale, which I think makes in intuitive sense for a lot more individuals or, or people can think of, okay, Zero is laying in bed, you know, complete rest, and 10 is sprint from danger pace or sprint to save your child from an oncoming car. Well, if we say that uh, vigorous intensity exercise is a seven on a 10 scale, okay, you can start to, con you know, contextualize that a little bit. So in terms of the RPE, that's what we're talking about in terms of high intensity, if we're going to say that's into that vigorous intensity range. Let's say someone is an, indiv an individual who's relatively fit and they've really focused on strength training. How much high-intensity interval training should they impart? Yeah, so again, the classic question. Again, my first answer to that would be uh, everyone's different. And, and for a given exercise program, some are going to thrive, some, some are going to wither. And so it really uh, depends on, on the individual and their tolerability. From a, a strength training perspective, and we really haven't even talked about, you know, high intensity resistance exercise or high intensity functional training, that's even more challenging or, or there's, uh, I, I think, uh, even less clarity around co what constitutes that. So maybe even just back up a bit, you know, the first question is, is resistance exercise high intensity interval training? Maybe, you know, I, I, I think this idea of high intensity functional training where we're talking, you know, functional style movements, often body weight style uh, movements, that can broadly count as, as interval training, but it's, you know, it's a different stimulus than when we think of traditional high intensity interval training, which is aerobic based running, cycling, things like that. So how, how much is, is too much? I, I think it depends on, first of all, um, you know, what's your goals? What, why are you doing this type of training and what's your specific goal? What's the overall volume of work that, that you're doing? You know, are you uh, lifting or training six days a week? Are you also employing cardio uh, with that? Uh, so when we talk about potential risk of overtraining, it, it does depend on, on the overall volume of, uh, of exercise. So, you know, regrettably, I, I can't give you a, a definitive answer in saying two sessions a week, three sessions a week is is the ideal or, or perfect for most individuals. You know, you look on the internet or re read a magazine, you'll say, you can't do more than one hit session a week if you're doing it right, because you'll break down. Or some people say, I only do interval training and I'm fine. So it, 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 it really depends. As it relates to some of the metabolic adaptations for, would you say classic high intensity interval training is the, like you said, a bike training or a sprint training, it's some kind of uh, movement 
not body weight, not uh, weight training. So if we were going to define high intensity interval training, what are some of the metabolic responses that you anticipate and how long does it take to see some kind of metabolic response? Yeah. So, you know, high intensity interval training, when we use traditional aerobic slash endurance type activities, cycling, running, elliptical, swimming, things like that, those would be the classic examples. Um, It's a pronounced physiological stress. And so the major responses that we see are an enhanced aerobic capacity and increased ability to transport and utilize oxygen. And so the physiological systems involved there are heart, lungs, blood vessels, skeletal muscle, their ability to use the oxygen. And so absolutely, we can then see an enhancement or improvement in cardiac function. Stroke volume goes up, peak cardiac output increases. Um, blood volume uh, can can increase. Skeletal muscle mitochondria, you know, the components of skeletal muscle that utilize oxygen to burn fuels like sugars and fats to produce energy. We can see very rapid remodeling or an increase in, in mitochondrial content. Uh, literally, within a couple of sessions, you can see those changes, again, depending on, on the starting point. Now, we can have many of those same changes with traditional continuous aerobic style training. And so I like to think of it as the physiology is the same, um, but how you stimulate the physiology in order to adapt and respond, that there's different inputs there that can be effective. Now, if you look at what elite endurance athletes do, any serious elite endurance athlete practices interval training because the, the evidence is very clear that they're going to optimize or further enhance the physiology in order to optimize performance as opposed to just continuous, moderate, steady state training all the time. That's very, very valuable. When an individual thinks, okay, I'm going to sit down, (laughs) sit down on your Airdyne bike, whatever, and do a interval training session, is there a certain amount of time? For example, does it need to reach 20 seconds? Does it need to reach 10 seconds? Um, is there a goal that an individual can shoot for? And let's just assume that this is a non-sedentary individual. Yeah. So uh, I, my, my personal opinion here, but I think backed up by, by some research or, you know, if I look at my, my personal sense is ideally you want to get your heart rate into that vigorous range. So you want to get into that vigorous range, let's say based on a heart rate response for at least 10 minutes. And so there's many in, in order to sort of have a minimal training stimulus. Now, there's many ways that you can do that. So for example, you could do three 20-second all-out bursts of activity with a short warm-up, a short cool-down, and a little bit of recovery in between. And if we look at the heart rate response, it gets up very quickly and it stays elevated for about 10 minutes. And so you know that, that's where the, the title of my book came from based on some of our research looking at three 20-second uh, efforts. Now, that's not saying it's the optimal way to train. It's not saying that that's appropriate uh, for everyone or, or the best. You know, you could also use less intense intervals with shorter recovery periods. So one minute on, one minute off is another example, you know, and just doing five of those sessions. Again, you're going to get into that 80% heart rate range uh, for at least 10 minutes. I, I tend to think that's about the minimum uh, stimulus uh, that, that's required. The caveat there to that is some of the work that we're starting to do now, looking at what we've called exercise snacks. We're not the first to use that term, but we've defined this as one minute bursts of vigorous effort that are performed periodically throughout the day. And so the analogy there is, you know, you're um, heading to work in the morning, one minute uh, vigorous effort, a couple of times a day, maybe at lunch before you leave for the day. And this could be bodyweight style exercise at your desk. You can imagine me getting up right now, doing a series of air squats or burpees uh, for a minute. You know, there, the recovery periods are very, very long, but there's some preliminary work to say even that type of stimulus is enough to enhance cardiorespiratory fitness or, or VO2 max. Again, it's not ideal, but it's another strategy that someone might employ. Uh, and so maybe that's cumulative adding it up over the course of the day. And would that be less ideal than doing it all at once? I, I think so, right? And so um, 
I'll give you a very specific example. So when we've looked at those three 20-second bursts of effort, and people do that over a 10-minute period, start to finish. So you can imagine one session during the day, three 20-second bursts over a 10-minute period. If they do that three times a week for six weeks, we see a one-met improvement, about a 10% boost in their cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, when we've looked at the exercise snacks approach, so basically a very similar dose of exercise, but spread over the course of the day, the improvement in fitness is smaller. You know, these are small studies, not all head-to-head comparisons, not systematic randomized controlled trials. But the takeaway there is the longer the recovery period, the the less the stimulus. And, you know, when you stack the stimuli close together, of course, it makes intuitive sense, but there is scientific data that would uh, that would suggest that. Would you say that the what would be at the higher end? If 10 minutes is the lower, would you say doubling that would be adequate per an ideal session? Yeah. So, um, you know, 20, 25 minutes of, of intervals, I think, is a more standard or traditional or typical uh, hit session, again, for that average individual or the, the general person who's already fit and looking to further enhance uh, their, their, their performance. Now, if you're the elite athlete, obviously you sometimes go much longer than that, but yeah, I think, you know, 20, 25 minutes, I hate to use that term sweet spot, but it seems to be an appropriate dose. Uh, and, and many of our studies, for example, we've done that 10 by one workout. So one minute on one minute off repeated 10 times, uh, or we've used other ways where the, the interval training session lasts about 20 or 25 minutes. And how often could an individual do that? Um, I know you're going to say it probably depends on the other activities. Let's say that this was the only thing that they were going to do. Yeah, how so many times a week could they do that? Our, our studies, the vast majority of studies are three times a week. Um, and again, not that I'm suggesting anyone will want to train the way that I personally train, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure the question will come up. What do no, you do we personally? Do, we, and, we do at our house. Uh, you know, typically, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a committed exerciser. I don't need to be motivated to exercise like many of your listeners, of course. But I tend to go... Uh, three sessions a week of aerobic based cardio style interval training. Much of that is on a cycle ergometer or stationary ergometer or outside. If I can, uh, ride, obviously when the weather's nice and that's interspersed with, I guess what you'd call high intensity functional training, body weight style exercise, small equipment style, uh, exercise. So that's typically six sessions a week. Uh, three of those are exactly what I just described to you as high intensity. Uh, cardio style interval training. And the other ones, how long do those other sessions last? Yeah, rarely am I exercising for more than half an hour. So the body weight sessions, again, tend to be around the same thing. You know, you're looking at probably 15, 20 um, sets in total of various body weight style exercises that last about half an hour. Now, you know, in, in the late spring, the summer, uh, the fall, I, I like to cycle a lot outside. And so my my cycling moves from 20 minute, 30 minute interval sessions on a stationary bike uh, to much longer rides outside because, because I enjoy that. And uh, of course, any inner, any cycling outside almost invariably involves interval uh, training on, unless it's a very flat course that you're only riding. But you know, around here, there's some hills and valleys. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's natural interval training, of course. Yeah. Sound, it actually sounds like a lot of fun. What impact do, does interval training have on body composition? Uh, so like most forms of exercise, interval training can be used as a, a strategy to assist with weight management and elicit some changes in body composition. I think it's important that we don't overstate it, of course. And as you well know, and many of your listeners, I'm sure, you know, nutrition is the primary uh, driver there. But there are data to suggest that you can see an increase in lean body mass, a reduction in fat mass with, with interval training. They tend to be uh, you know, subtle. We're not talking massive changes in body composition unless there's a, a pronounced dietary uh, component to that. And it would also depend on the type of interval training. You know, if we're talking what we've, you know, defined here as functional style interval training with more of a resistive element, then you're going to see greater increases in uh, muscle hypertrophy potentially or strength gains and so a greater stimulus for a, for a lean mass uh, Im- improvement. You know, if we, if we look at Often people will say, well, how can intervals be effective at all for weight loss or weight management? You know, because they're often very, very short. Um, personal trainers talk about the afterburn effect. There's definitely something to that. So the more vigorous the preceding exercise, even if it's short, 
metabolic rate increases in recovery. Again, it's often overstated, uh, but there's definitely something to these small transient boosts in metabolic rate adding up over time and supporting weight management, body composition changes, um, again, especially over time. And in any of your studies, did you also look at blood biomarkers like triglycerides, glucose, insulin? Yeah, we, we look at those a lot. Uh, we, we've looked at a lot of uh, basically glycemic metrics. So we've looked at static blood glucose measures. We looked at various measures of insulin sensitivity. We've used continuous glucose monitoring in some of our studies. Uh, and yes, we can see improvements in various metrics, certainly of glycemic control, uh, with the various interval training models uh, that we've used. Uh, some others have shown uh, some changes in, in blood fats, again, uh, consistent with an enhanced health profile uh, when we look at uh, numerous uh, commonly measured blood markers of health. So in a weight-neutral individual, let's say that they're healthy, athletic individual um, in perhaps the, the study, do you see changes that are short-term as it relates to triglycerides or insulin regulation, or does it really require a 12-week period? Um, you can definitely see changes within about six weeks or so. Now, how long those would persist if someone just stopped, you know, we'd probably see a fairly rapid uh, decline, and you would be well aware of the whole, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it a controversy, but I think, you know, there there's does exercise training elicit chronic improvements in insulin sensitivity, or is it just a, the fact that you're doing repeated acute bouts and you're seeing the, the residual effect of that previous bout, and as soon as you stop, it's, it's going to go away. But in our studies, uh, often our studies are six weeks in duration. We see measurable improvements in various markers of uh, glycemic control, uh, glucose parameters, um, so that, that's sort of the timeline that we're looking uh, at. And of course, it depends on the starting uh, capacity of an individual. We've seen marked changes in glucose control using continuous glucose monitoring with six sessions over two weeks in individuals who are older uh, with type 2 diabetes. So you can see very rapid changes, again, depending where the starting level is. You alluded to people who are already quite fit. You know, there's there's only so much improvement you can get when you already have good tight glycemic control to start. Hmm. And as it relates to the aging population, do you see, you know, there's a, a lot of discussion about how VO2 max decreases um, as individuals age. I often wonder, is this also related to muscle mass? Are there changes that we anticipate for an older individual or can those be mitigated based on their activity level in general? Yeah, I, the the most common metric that we measure and arguably the most common, probably inarguably, the most common metric looked in the literature across ages, different types of interval training is cardiorespiratory fitness as objectively measured with a VO2 max test. And that's as you allude to, because it's such an important marker of, of health, you know, risk for direct correlations, uh, you know, between risk of dying from all causes, uh, risk of developing type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And so if you can enhance or maintain your cardiorespiratory fitness as long as you can, that's generally a good strategy. And interval training can be a very effective way in order uh, to do that. You know, you alluded to, to sarcopenia. You know, I think we could have, there could be a really good debate around, you know, if you could only do one, uh, do you want to try and enhance cardiorespiratory fitness or do you want to try and enhance muscle strength as, as you age? Um, clearly, you want to do both. Uh, and that's where I think functional style high intensity interval training can be uh, very effective be because you're getting the strength uh, benefit, especially lower body strength, uh, depending on the movements that you're using. And if you keep the recovery period short, high intensity functional training can lead to improvements or at least a maintenance of cardiorespiratory fitness uh, as, as well. And we know that there's many types of interval training, including functional style training that have been applied uh, safely and uh, efficaciously in older individuals uh, in, you know, we're talking even into octogenarians. Uh, so uh, like many forms of exercise, we can appropriately tailor it to the, uh, to the individual. And so, you know, to just say that every, everyone can do interval training or no one can do interval training, those, those blanket start statements just aren't appropriate. Are there ever times where an individual say they're, they're relatively untrained and they're unable to utilize their skeletal muscle enough to bring up their heart rate? Do you see that? 
We have not in our uh, studies, even with some fairly deconditioned uh, individuals, uh, I have not done these studies, but some of my colleagues, and there is work, for example, looking at individuals with spinal cord injury, uh, especially lower body spinal cord injury, uh, where those individuals uh, can perform uh, arm, crank, arm cranking exercise in order to, out, to try and elicit a cardiospiratory stress. And so that style of exercise uh, in individuals uh, like that can, can also be effectively applied. So my short answer to your question is no, we have not seen a situation where, you know, people are unable to, unable to sufficiently activate their skeletal muscles to get a cardiovascular training stimulus. So essentially everybody could do this. <laughs> Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. I would love to highlight OptiGreens 50. It is a greens superfood with phytonutrients, digestive enzymes, and probiotics in it. It comes in a pack with 30 servings. So they're individual serving packs, which make it very easy to travel with. One of the reasons I love OptiGreens 50 is that it is low temperature processed, meaning it maintains its nutrient value. There is no artificial colors, flavors, sweeteners, or preservatives. It is 100% non-GMO and gluten-free. There is a whole host of things in it, including barley grass, organic spirulina, wheatgrass, oatgrass, all the grasses, kale, rice bran, cranberry, wildberry, all, wild, sorry, wild bilberry. That is just a sliver of the extensive amount of phytonutrient-containing compounds in it. I think that it is a wonderful product, and most importantly, it tastes really great. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Check out OptiGreens 50. You can read over their 15,000 reviews on this product. It is one of their most successful products. That is how much people love it. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and get yours today. This show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. As you know, I believe blood work is very important. And especially on the topic of high-intensity interval training over a period of time, you will see your blood markers improve. Inside Tracker allows you to examine what is going on in your own body. Inside Tracker has made a great number of strides this past year in adding new biomarkers. For example, ApoB, which is a critical marker for heart health, as well as three hormone markers that are especially important for addressing symptoms related to aging and overall well-being. Inside Tracker has recently added insulin, which is a key biomarker for sustained energy and an early warning sign for several chronic diseases, especially as it relates to muscle health. I love Inside Tracker. It is your responsibility to take control of your health. And the only way that you're going to do it is if you get regular blood work, which I do. And I strongly suggest that you do it as well. And for a limited time only, you'll get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store, which is very generous of them. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's inside, like inside your body, insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon. So essentially, yes, unless there's an explicit contraindication, right? And of course, you know, if someone is just uh, very deconditioned, just starting out, you know, I don't think they need to be afraid of interval training. They might not necessarily want to jump right into high intensity or certainly sprint interval training, but, you know, just that idea of hills and valleys, uh, light to moderate alternating pattern of activity can be extremely effective. And so ideally, I think we would always suggest that people start with moderate sort of preconditioning before they start to push themselves. You know, that being said, uh, high intensity interval training has been uh, applied to many different uh, in individuals. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a cardiologist, but there are explicit conditions, uh, unstable angina, for example, where this might be absolutely contraindicated, but it's more, I would say, the exception than the rule for, as a general statement, can uh, most people perform uh, interval type exercise. That's very valuable because oftentimes people will 
um, think about all the roadblocks to training and nothing is more important than the physical health, you know, really leveraging that skeletal muscle. Can you define sprint interval training and when that would be utilized? Yeah. So again, our working definition, and I think this generally aligns with how it's often used, uh, you know, why don't I start with the performance side? Cause maybe it's a little bit easier there. Sprint interval training would be a, uh, at a pace that's above maximal aerobic work rate. So maximal aerobic speed, if you're a runner, maximum aerobic power, if you're a cyclist. So you can imagine what is the power or speed that elicits your VO2 max. But of course, you can work well above that up to what coaches and athletes refer to maximal sprint speed. And that difference between maximal aerobic work rate and maximal sprint rate is sometimes called your anaerobic speed reserve. But the bottom line is working above VO2 max work rate pace constitutes sprint interval type training in a performance setting where they're, we're usually often aware of what peak workloads uh, are, peak work rates are. On the, the health, on the health side, uh, again, I would go back to this, uh, the, the ACSM definition of near maximal to maximal uh, exercise. And there we're talking, uh, you know, above about 91% of VO2 max, above 95% of heart rate max, 17 out of 20 on an RPE scale. So again, those are contextualized reasonable values, if you will, or thresholds for what distinguishes this particularly intense variant sprint interval training from uh, other forms of lower intensity, high intensity interval training. And it's very uncomfortable. It is. You know, there's no free lunch here, right? If, yeah. if, if you want to You are not going to look forward to this session, or if you are, you are definitely doing it wrong. Absolutely. It's an uncomfortable form of exercise. The pace required to do it right is uncomfortable. Um, you know, and this is where it's really important to, to understand the nuance of, well, what is hit? What is sit? Because I would submit that sometimes, you know, for the folks who aren't fans of interval training, and there's some vocal ones out there, of course, they will try to sometimes position interval training as only sprint type interval training or these all out Wingate type efforts and say, well, no one's going to do that. And of course, many people are unwilling or unable to do that style of training. But there's a there's a huge range there, I think, when it comes to high intensity uh, interval training. Essentially, everyone can do high intensity interval training. Sprint interval training is somewhat of its own beast, right? To even know that you're reaching that max capacity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair to say. And even when we say everyone can do hit, um, you know, the vast majority of people can, uh, and there may be some who, yeah, right, it's contraindicated for. But yeah, that I think that's a fair analogy, how you just uh, place that. And we discussed that the length of time, a minimum effective dose would be about 10 minutes of high intensity interval training. A sweet spot would be 20 to 25 minutes. Where does uh, sprint interval training fall in that. Yeah. And so when I said that, you know, 10 minutes, uh, those three 20 second bursts of training are, are, are sprint type efforts, right? And so that would be, be an example of where, you know, one minute of intermittent sprinting over a 10 minute period, we know that that is sufficient to get into that elevated heart rate uh, range. And we know that type of training leads to marked and robust increases in, in mitochondrial uh, content. So again, if you're able and willing uh, to do that sprint type effort, uh, it can be an extremely, certainly time efficient uh, way for, for people to train, uh, but it's, it's just one flavor. So one minute over 10 minutes at max effort. Exactly. One so minute total. That's exactly right. And so, you know, to say it explicitly for your listeners, in these studies, we've generally done uh, a, a three minute warm up. 20-second all-out sprint, two minutes of recovery. Another 20-second sprint, two minutes of recovery. A final 20-second sprint, another two minutes of recovery. And so if you add that up, it's 10 minutes from start to finish. And within that, only one minute of hard effort, one minute of all-out effort as three 20-second bursts. That's incredible. That's so efficient and effective. As it relates to sex differences, men and women, do you see that some individuals respond better than others? 
How can we think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely suggestions in the literature, including from our own laboratory, where uh, biological males and biological females show some slightly different responses. So for example, there's some evidence that the cardiovascular, the peak cardiac output response in females may be blunted compared to uh, males. But these studies tend to be relatively small and it's hard to say, is this a true biological sex difference or is this just inter-individual differences in training responsiveness? And I, I'm more, I think, I think the best answer could be, I think there's much greater inter-individual differences in training responsiveness, regardless of if you identify as a man or a woman or you're a biological male or biological female. That's not to say there's no sex-based differences uh, at all. But I think in a lot of things, they tend to be relatively subtle. They may be real, um, but we really need some very large-scale studies to, to pull this out and tease this out. You know, to be clear, males and females can both respond robustly to interval-style training. There might be some subtle differences there that may be related to biological sex. And you had mentioned that there's a influence on mitochondria, mitochondrial health. What are some of, so I'm curious as to what are some of those influences? And then uh, my next question is, do you also see changes in fiber type? So so my listeners are very interested in aging and protecting themselves about, at least, at least you guys better be, aging, protecting themselves against sarcopenia, which we know that there are fiber type changes. What are some of the fiber type changes that you've seen in uh, high intensity interval training? And also, again, some of those other um, adaptations like mitochondria. Yeah. So, you know, our, 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 a, a very primary focus of my laboratory has been on, on mitochondria. And so you can measure those in, in different ways. We can look at, for example, acute markers of mitochondrial biogenesis. So you can imagine these are molecular proteins that are turned on or triggered after a single session of exercise, including HIT or sprint type protocols. And we can see robust phosphorylation or increased uh, activation of many of these mitochondrial biogenesis uh, proteins. You know, after a few days or weeks or months, uh, we see measurable increases in mitochondrial protein content. So we'll pick specific proteins that we know are integral to mitochondria, and we'll measure those in different ways, either the maximal activity or the content of those, and we see that they're increased. Uh, you can also measure something called mitochondrial respiration, which is a measure of sort of how functional the mitochondria are, literally, how much oxygen is that unit of mitochondria using? So there's various metrics that we've used and shown that all of them can be increased to varying uh, degrees. We all These are hard studies to do, but in collaboration uh, with some colleagues down uh, in Australia, we have done some fiber type specific responses, both acutely and after a period of training. And we can see stimulation of both of those things, acute biomarkers, as well as training markers in both fiber types, type one, type two muscle fibers, there's not a massive hypertrophy response. So you can basically with traditional aerobic style interval training, if we we'll use that broad term, you see an improvement in the metabolic profile of the fibers and enhanced mitochondrial content, which should suggest greater ability to burn fat and sugars but we don't see marked hypertrophy growth of those uh, muscle fibers. So sprint and hit are not really a massive hypertrophic stimulus, but they do target the fibers to make them more metabolically healthy, if you will. And metabolic health, there's a lot of discussion in the literature and just within uh, probably mutual colleagues of ours about flux, glycogen flux. Can you talk a little bit about the substrate utilization I think would be very valuable for people as they're thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, again, generally speaking, when we talk about substrate flux or often the term is metabolic flexibility. So you would like to provide or you'd like to have muscle fibers that are very flexible in terms of what fuels they'll utilize in different, uh, you know, how, how much in different rates. And so, uh, you know, broadly speaking, that aligns or correlates very well with mitochondrial health and function. So if you in, enhance your mitochondria, um, you, you tend to have a greater capacity to utilize both sugars and fats, muscle glycogen, triglyceride, 
you know, bloodborne fats, bloodborne uh, sugars. Um, and, and so in my view, many types of exercise training will enhance uh, mitochondrial content, mitochondrial function, mitochondrial health. And that in turn translates into greater metabolic flexibility and the ability to use sugars or fats depending on when the need arises. And so we'll often see is in resting conditions, the ability to utilize lipid at rest or burn fat at rest is enhanced. And it's also enhanced during exercise. And then when you really have to drop the hammer and perform hard, you can oxidize or burn through sugar glycogen at a higher rate as well. So it's sort of like the overall capacity increases. And then in a, at a given situation, rest, moderate exercise, high intensity exercise, you can shift the type of fuel that you're using in those various states. So essentially, you train your body, not just physically, but you're training your body to use substrates effectively, especially the times in which you should be, whether it's they're using free fatty acids or glucose. As it relates to nutrition, have you thought much about nutrition for improvement in uh, an individual's capacity to perform hit or even sprint interval? So now that we've just talked about high intensity interval, and we know that sprint interval is its own beast, I am very hesitant to even lump those nutritional aspects together. So I will let you take it away and decide if um, they should be lumped together or not. Yeah. So no, that's uh, that, that's great. Um, I we, we have been interested for the potential for nutrition to augment responses. I would say that exercise, whether it's hit or sit, that's the big hammer. And there's maybe subtle influences of nutrition. So for example, we've given uh, specific supplements or compounds in an effort to try and enhance various indices. And we see very, very subtle effects. We've had people train in the fed or fasted uh, state, for example. Uh, other work that's looked at carbohydrate restriction or carbohydrate supplementation. Again, maybe on the restriction side, you can see some, uh, there's some suggestions of maybe some enhancements in, 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 in mitochondria. Um, you know, th that's a really loaded issue and it doesn't mean that people should, you know, train glycogen depleted or anything like that, or certainly not race glycogen, uh, depleted. But suffice to say, Nutrition can subtly modify some of these responses that we see to hit and sit, but it tends to be small and subtle. And the, the main stimulus is, is the exercise stimulus. And is it small and subtle because of the amount of time of the activity? I, I, I um, Possibly, but I, I, I think just more exercise is such a powerful stimulus that the modifications that you can get through nutrition tend to be relatively uh, subtle. And, you know, and of course, writ large, the, a limitation of the field is many studies, you know, they tend to be relatively small in terms of number of participants, and they tend to be relatively short term. You know, a three-month training study, if you do it well, it's hard to do. And, and you know, that's a relatively short period of time. There certainly aren't large-scale randomized clinical studies looking at the effect of the interactive effects of nutrition and interval training. There are now some very long-duration, high-intensity interval training studies. For example, the Generation 100 study uh, followed uh, older individuals over five years of interval or moderate, uh, uh, moderate continuous uh, style training. So there are some longer-duration studies now, but there's still the... Uh, they're more the exception than the rule. Mm. Um, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. So I'm going to say, don't say as long as you get it in. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm laying it out there. Does, so the intensity, the capacity to perform um, high intensity interval training probably affects the nervous system and potentially can really the body would experience, say, a stress different than an individual who is going to do maybe deadlifts or squats. Does timing matter? So you're not allowed to say only as long as you get it in that day. Is there some benefit to uh, doing it earlier on in the day from um, perhaps a sleep or some kind of recovery uh, or metabolic benefit or cortisol benefit versus if an individual is doing a sprint interval training at eight o'clock at night? Maybe. And why I say maybe is if you do it in the morning, you're more likely to get it in, right? I have colleagues who will talk about, 
you're, you got so much battery life through the day, right? Stuart Phillips definitely talks about this. Yeah. And my exercise behavior colleagues talk about the battery. And over the course of the day, the battery drains down. And so you could argue that while the battery is nice and high at the start of the day, you get it in and maybe you're going to give a little more effort or something like that. Um, maybe that then primes your system. And again, we're using very loose words here, but somehow uh, primes your system then that then you're going to hit it with, you know, a big breakfast after that. And the muscles are primed to absorb the sugar stored as muscle glycogen, maybe less of the blood sugar gets shunted off to, you know, uh, more negative uh, effects. So I think you could, you could make a case for doing interval training in the morning, but yeah, uh, you said I can't say it. So uh, <laughs> that's the best evidence yeah. that I could give you. <laughs> oh, so as it stands right now, it doesn't really matter if you're going to do it in the morning or do it at night. You have to know yourself. Potentially, it could disrupt your sleep. Have you looked at any hormone responses, cortisol, testosterone? Is that anything that you guys are working on in your lab? We haven't done a, a no. The short answer is no. We haven't done a, a, a lot of that. Um, so I'll I'll just leave it at that and say I, I can't speak authoritatively to the role of hormones other than clearly, you know, you have massive catecholamine responses when you do this type of, of training. Uh, but we also know that they spike and then they come back down. So I, I don't, um, uh, you know, I, I know there's su some suggestions out there that you have chronic increases in cortisol and that could lead to you know, some deleterious effects, but I, I, I don't see a lot of evidence for that when I look at the literature currently. I, I would agree with you. Uh, perhaps it's people that are not wanting to exercise. Maybe. <laughs> um, as it relates to uh, supplementation, do you ever recommend creatine or, or things of that nature? Or is there particular supplements that you think are useful? So, you know, I, I'm a proponent of 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 using uh, natural foods, natural diet. Uh, you know, when we when you look at the number of supplements that are out there, where there's robust evidence that they really may work, it's it's precious few. Uh, of, of course, um, you know, could an individual supplement with creatine, for example, and would that potentiate responses? I think you'd make a really good theoretical argument for that. I would say the evidence right now for that is is limited. Um, you know, it, again, there's there's good theoretical rationale, or caffeine would be another example, right? Because we know with either creatine or caffeine, if you do repeated sprints, you can see an increase, a slight boost in power, and so presumably then the cumulative stress over time may facilitate some greater adaptations or responses. And there's no doubt that you, if you look at acute situations, you can see that. There's just not great data right now, in my mind, to suggest that any particular supplement is going to absolutely potentiate responses. You know, can, can selected supplements be used uh, quite effectively uh, by athletes? You know, Absolutely. Right. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Australian Institute of Sport Pyramid. You've probably seen it in various versions where, you know, you have to get the base right in terms of fundamental nutrition, fundamental sleep, fundamental training. If all of those things are right, then right at the top of the pyramid, you know, you can potentiate uh, some selected responses. But for the vast majority of us, we don't have the pyramid right or there's so much variability in the pyramid. And that's where I think any slight benefit that you might get from supplementation is going to be washed out by all this variability of I didn't sleep very last well very night or you know my diet hasn't been consistently well or I missed those training sessions. Yeah. Um I, I can I can definitely appreciate that. You've been doing this for how many years? 15 years now? Certainly. Certainly. That means that you know what is coming on the forefront. That there are probably things emerging on the forefront that we have no idea of that are really within academics, uh, deeply, you know, deeply embedded in academics that we have not seen. What are those things? Well, so I, I would say a, I'll, I'll use a, a, you know, I'll use a holy grail, for example, would be individualized exercise prescription that, you know, that 
and I, I, it's a bit like personalized medicine. You know, it, it's an attractive concept. Um, I think it's going to be actually very hard to achieve, but there are definitely people looking at, you know, what are these molecular signals? And, it, you know, it's too simplistic to say we're, we're going to identify the exercise gene or the sprint gene or the hit gene or something like that. You know, if people have it or they don't. We know they should train in that manner. But I know there's very robust work that's happening right now, um, you know, with these in incredible bioinformetrics and, and these amazing research platforms that are trying to look at, you know, these clusters of proteins that you see are only, these protein signals are only activated to go up with this particular uh, type of training. And so that's where then you might be able to get to, well, if we know an athlete has this sort of molecular signature, maybe they might respond more to this type of training or that type of training. Uh, you know, there's a field of metabolomics, which is similar analogy, but maybe you're looking at a saliva sample or a blood sample. And ideally you see, well, if they have this chemical signature, we know that they may respond robustly to this type of exercise to enhance their glucose control. Uh, and so there are definitely studies going on that are looking at that. But again, you need a lot of people. You need to train lots of people different ways uh, and see who responds or not and what their you know, metabolic profiles were to begin with. But I think that's just a fascinating area of research where there will be advances, you know, the pace of which are, are hard to, to say. Um, but, you know, like we see examples of that in medicine, you know, oncology and cancer biology would be a very clear example of that. How far away do you think that we are from being able to uh, lever, uh, to push that lever? I, we're far away if we're thinking in terms of, you know, a parent might take their kid in and get a, you know, a, a tissue sample <laughs> right. and, and say junior is going to be a world-class sprinter. Like we're, we're far, far, far away from that. I don't think we're that far away from starting to identify, you know, people who have this metabolic signature or profile, uh, you know, particularly if they have these few explicit proteins uh, lumped together, we know that they respond very robustly to uh, heavy uh, resistance training. Um, you know, I, I don't know yet that we're going to do much about that. You know, we're certainly not talking about gene manipulation or anything like that, but it just might help people especially, you know, the hard gainers or, you know, whatever type of exercise you find you're not responsive to that, it may just help explain that um, for you. I think that would be really incredible. One of the other things, and uh, there's a lot of people in Copenhagen, a lot of people, Bente uh, Pedersen and a handful of people in Copenhagen that are really looking to think about and provide a dose response. Do you think that there's going to be a role for, say, for example, blood markers that we're not typically measuring like myokines? Yes. Uh, you know, that was going to be a, another example um, that, I, that I was going to point to. Yeah, absolutely. Right there, we're looking at um, these, you know, myokines, exokines, they go by different names. Uh, you know, BDNF, obviously, with the brain is getting a lot of attention uh, right now. Uh, I, I, I do think uh, some advancements can be made in terms of, okay, what are the best stimuli in order to enhance or stimulate changes in these specific uh, proteins or markers? Uh, and then can we tie those to neurogenesis or brain health or other specific metabolic health outcomes? Yes, I think there's going to be advances in that area. Absolutely. That is something I'm so interested in, and I think it's incredibly profound. If that can happen, think about the impact and influence that would have on individuals' health. I have, I've been seeing patients for over a decade, and often people will say, well, I go, I go to the gym, I work out, and you see them, and, and they may be working out, but you know that their body composition hasn't changed. They may be very dedicated. They're just not getting the stimulus that they need. And perhaps it's that they're just not doing the activity necessary or the activity that is necessary for their body to produce the myokines or the gene expression that we need. And if, if we could really target that, you know, from a, a muscle centric medicine perspective, we could change the trajectory of health. And as a researcher, you're probably cringing because I'm talking in an absolute here, but, you know, um, muscle health and that input of exercise is everything. Yeah, no, no, I agree 100% with you. And, you know, by the same token, we know 
you know, go back to the classic studies of heritage and other studies, we know there are individuals who can do six months of supervised, structured exercise training and their VO2 max doesn't budge. And it's not like they weren't putting in the effort or doing the work or they were cheating on their training diary. But, you know, what explains that, right? What explains those people or the very few people who might go down in their VO2 max? Now, you know, we call them non-responders. Doesn't mean they're non-responders to everything. They might still have an improved blood pressure profile or, or glucose control profile, but it would be um, profound, I think, to start to be able to explain why does that happen? And could we identify those individuals in advance and say, like, this type of traditional approach to exercise or diet is, is not ideal for you. And there is some evidence to say that, well, if you tweak it or you train in this way, or you take this particular supplement, that might help potentiate responsiveness in you. Yeah, that would be incredible. And hopefully we're not too far off and, and we can start leveraging that. So what's next for you? Yeah, so our, our we're big on we're big on the exercise snack stuff, trying to and and again, a lot of our studies are what I call small proof of concept studies, right? I like to think that we sometimes ask uh, cool questions. Um, and, you know, but these studies have limitations, of course. And if you do very invasive human research, you're typically not doing thousands of, of, uh, participants, uh, because these studies are expensive and again, very, uh, invasive. So definitely one aspect of my lab is moving towards larger randomized controlled trials, right? And so we have two studies ongoing right now, uh, with my uh, primary collaborator, uh, Dr. John Little at the University of British Columbia, looking at exercise snack interventions, um, what we call technologically enabled. So we're working with an industry partner. And so people will get a prompt on their phone, a message that says, hey, it's time for your exercise snack. And then they can choose what snack they want to do. It shows them a video to do the snack hard. You know, <laughs> it's right there in front of you. You just got to follow along and do the exercise snack. And we're comparing that. So those snacks are vigorous in nature. And there's another group who's also getting um, a snack, but it's lower intensity in nature. And obviously our hypothesis is the groups that do the more vigorous exercise snacks over a couple of months of that type of training are going to see a greater improvement in their cardiospiratory fitness, greater blood profile. Um, and so that work is ongoing right now. We're just about to start a very similar study in individuals with type 2 diabetes, uh, you know, clearly lack of time is an excuse for many people. It's not the primary barrier. It's an often cited barrier for why people are not active. But the reality is that many people are looking for time efficient options, or they will say, ah, I see the guidelines, but how little do I really have to do? How little can I get away with? And so we think that work will make a contribution by saying, you know what? If you do three exercise snacks a day, a few times a week for 12 weeks, you can see improvements in your blood sugar profile. Um, so that work is ongoing. I was very privileged to be part of a very large study uh, that was published at the end of last year that was mining UK biobank data. So you may be aware of the UK biobank. It's a very big collection of data uh, in the United uh, Kingdom. And so you, it enables you to follow large groups of individuals over time and that work showed that as little as three to four minutes a day of vigorous, intermittent physical activity, not even structured exercise, three to four minutes a day of vigorous, intermittent lifestyle, physical activity was associated with about a 25% lower mortality compared to people who did none of that. So that work to me is quite compelling. And so we're Clearly, I'm a proponent of vigorous intensity exercise, low-dose vigorous intensity exercise for those who are unwilling to engage in large volumes of exercise. And we're trying to now look at that on several fronts. Certainly, the small, basic, mechanistic work, controlled, randomized trials, and collaborating with, with some other experts on these larger databases. And, and to me, they're all sort of suggesting the same thing, and that's that brief vigorous exercise or physical activity can be extremely beneficial to your health. Well, I think that that's incredible. I'm so grateful for your time and your just the contribution that you're doing is 
wonderful. You are articulate and charismatic, which always, you know, scientists don't always get to uh, have those qualities. I really appreciate it. And you also have a book. I do. So uh, a couple of years old now, but it's called yep. the One Minute Workout. But it basically talks about a lot of the underlying science, uh, hopefully in an accessible uh, manner. You know, the way that we write scientific articles is obviously the very different from how we might try and explain, communicate science uh, to, uh, to the general public. Uh, but we consider, we touch on many of the things that we uh, spoke about uh, today. And so uh, I appreciate that plug and I appreciate your interest in our work. And I, I hope some of this conversation is of interest uh, to your listeners. It will be. We'll link where to find you on Twitter and uh, we'll link a, a few of your papers. We'll put that in the newsletter. We have a newsletter. We'll review one of your papers and put it in there. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.